Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. guys have read the book uh the seven habits of highly successful people anybody read, read that book before that's okay okay a couple people have read that book good and uh <clears throat> hopefully it's it's helped them uh i don't know how many of you have done the seven minute workout anybody did the seven minute workout i guess that's that was popular for a time i i didn't do that either so you know those things are probably from an earthly standpoint i suppose there was some benefit to those things um, this Good Friday evening, we're going to be looking at the last sermon Christ preached as he was being crucified. You might say, wait a minute, he preached a sermon? Yes, he did, actually. They're recorded across the four gospel accounts, and there's seven things that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross. And really, it becomes a sermon when you look into it and, and diagnose it and, and examine what, what it is. And so... Uh, want to just have you keep one thing in mind. Um, even though this would be Jesus's seven-point sermon, uh, not that he went to a seminary or anything like that, but <clears throat> think about this. He's on the cross in intense pain at this point, and it's going to gradually progress in more intensity. Towards the end, he'll be intensely exhausted to the point where breathing is painful and breathing is next to impossible and it is even during that time Jesus speaks seven utterances while he's on the cross and despite their brevity because again bear in mind he didn't have you know a bunch of uh, time on his hands or he didn't you know he, didn't, he was in pain um, despite the brevity of these seven things it speaks volumes to you and I as we look at these things. And so tonight, I want to just take a look at the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. They're not in one gospel. Like I said, they're kind of spread across uh, the four gospels. And so as Jesus is being nailed to the cross by the Roman soldiers, and he's being mocked by them and being mocked by uh, the Jews there, he uttered his very first saying, and it's recorded in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. It says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This is significant because if you think, if you remember back to Jesus' ministry, Jesus taught people. He taught his disciples in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. He said, But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's, was a, that's what Jesus was teaching his disciples during his earthly ministry. And now he's on the cross and now he's, what we would say, he's practicing what he preaches. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2.20. He said, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? 
But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So he left an example for us, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. He left that example for us. He lived it out. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9 says this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit in blessing. How hard is that? for you and I to do when we feel like we've been wronged. And when we've been mistreated or abused, how hard is it to forgive that person, that individual? And so this first saying, this first utterance of Jesus on the cross, we find that forgiveness flows from the cross. We learn by Jesus' example that yes, it is possible to forgive others. And we learn how to forgive others as you and I watch Jesus setting that example on the cross. The second saying is in Luke 23, verse 43. And I want to read a little bit ahead of that in verse 35. It says, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let himself, uh, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him. By the way, this is prophetically fulfilled in Psalm 22. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. <clears throat> but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And now we get to the second utterance of Christ on the cross. And Jesus said to him, verse 43, assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Someone might ask, are there deathbed conversions? And the answer is yes, there are deathbed conversions. That's possible. But I want to encourage you, don't wait to find out, to prove that point. Don't wait to test it. There's only one example of a deathbed conversion in the Bible. Praise God, there's one, so we know it's possible. But the fact that there's not hundreds and thousands of them should tell you something, too. Don't test the theory. Don't presume. I think what this 
beautifully shows here what Jesus, I think, taught volumes with just those simple words is this, the simplicity of faith. It's just simple to put your trust in Christ for your salvation. Listen, the thief on the cross, some people say, well, you know, you must be baptized to be saved. Well, the thief on the cross had no opportunity to be baptized whatsoever. And yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't even say, okay, I want you to bow your head and repeat after me. And Jesus didn't lead this, this man, this thief, in the sinner's prayer. That sounds, what? wait a minute. How is he saved? The simplicity of faith. The simplicity of faith. Even though he didn't lead him in a sinner's prayer, yet if you listen and you look at what this robber, what this thief said, he knew he was a sinner. <clears throat> he believed Jesus said who he said he was. He even called him Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, and he cried out to him for salvation. Romans 10, verses 8 through 13 says this. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, including a thief on the cross in his last dying moments. I also believe that this is a partial fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. Isaiah 53 is one of those Old Testament scriptures that just, it just speaks of the crucifixion and the, <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus Christ and everything that he did on the cross. And in verse 11 of chapter 53, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall, bear, uh, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And I have to wonder, as Jesus is dying on the cross, as he's being mocked and, and ridiculed, and you know, he was a man just like you and I. He was tempted like we were tempted. He was probably growing very discouraged like you or I would have. And I kind of wonder, I wonder if the father just gave him a little glimpse, son, it's not in vain. Look at here's the fruit of your labor. One person already coming to faith in you. I, I, you know, it doesn't say that that's what it is, but I have to wonder if that was just a glimpse that the Father gave the Son. I tell you, in my life as a believer, I am so thankful there's times when Jesus, he just gives me a little glimpse, a little glimpse of something just to encourage me. Somebody, you know, comes to faith in the Lord or you get an opportunity to minister to someone or, or, you know, you're looking for something and, you know, I'm always losing things and I pray, Lord, help me find it. And boom, there it is. <laughs> and, you know, and you go, well, that's just coincidental. I go, thank you, Lord, for giving me that glimpse that I, I know you're there and I know you care. And so I have to wonder if that's a partial fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 11. This second saying, though, 
What I think it speaks volumes to you and I tonight is the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ. It's so simple. I apologize. The sun's in your eyes. I can see that. <laughs> We're not used to doing a service at this time of the hour. So, no. <laughs> so as Jesus was being crucified, we know from scriptures that the disciples all scattered. There was one that didn't, though, and that was John. John, along with some of the women disciples of Christ, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, were at the cross. They were watching. And we get to the third utterance of Christ on the cross. It's recorded in John 19, verse 26 and 27. It says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And you might say, Well, wait a minute. Jesus had half brothers and half sisters. We know that from the Gospels. Why tell this disciple, the disciple John, to consider Mary his mom, and to tell Mary his mom to consider John her son when she had other sons? Well, for one thing, the other sons weren't believers at this point. They will later. But at this point, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But I think what this is speaking volumes to us tonight is that families and marriages and relationships are only truly forged at the cross. And I want to explain what I mean. How many well-meaning parents try to strengthen their relationships with their kids by taking them on family vacations or uh, being at all their sports activities, getting them involved in everything that they can, wanting to give them the most fulfilling childhood as possible, being present at every major event in their lives. And believe me, those are all good things. It's good to do those things for your children. However, if you neglect the cross in your relationships, in your marriage, and in your family, you will have substituted the good for the best. Why is the cross important for the family, for the marriage, and for relationships? Because as I said earlier, forgiveness flows from the cross. I can't stay in anger, in a place of anger, in a place of unforgiveness toward my spouse or my child, or my parent, or a sibling, when I think of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ gives me through the cross, I can't remain in that place because of the cross. Because the cross means death and dying to self, I can't be self-centered and selfish when I think of how Christ died for me. How can I be selfish when Christ was totally selfless by laying down his life for me? Because the cross means humility, I can't be prideful, insist I'm always right, and everyone offends me when I think of how Christ took all that abuse and all that mistreatment without fighting, black, without fighting back. And by the way, Jesus didn't say, woman, would you consider John your father, or you mean your son, and, you know, vice. He didn't make it optional. Why? Because... The cross also means unconditional love. 
I can't withhold love or place conditions on it when I see Christ's unconditional love for me. It is so important to include the cross in our relationships and in our families. You can do all that you want for your kids and do the best things, but if you don't get them around the cross, you've really wasted your time. This third saying, I think, really just speaks volumes that families and relationships are forged at the cross. Don't neglect the cross in your relationships. We get to the fourth saying, and that's recorded in Mark 15, verse 34. In verse 33 of Mark 15, it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here's the fourth utterance of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1. We read that there's darkness or was darkness over the land from noon until 3 p.m. And do you know that even secular historians of that day mention an extraordinary eclipse of the sun and also an earthquake, because you read about an earthquake in the Gospels too, about this same time in history. Which is very fascinating because Jesus' crucifixion occurred during the Passover and during uh, the Passover occurred during a full moon, and so it would be impossible for there to be a natural eclipse because of that. So what was taking place? The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And it's almost as if all creation was in a supernatural state of darkness at this moment in time. Those three hours when the Father was forsaking the son because of his because he took on your and my sin. <clears throat> Jesus was in agony, but it wasn't because of the excruciating pain that he endured. And believe me, he did experience excruciating pain. By the way, that word excruciating, it simply means out of the cross. Jesus experienced excruciating pain, but that's not why he was in agony. He was not in agony because of fear of the death that he would soon experience. He was in agony because he was being forsaken by the Father when he turned from him as he became sin for us. <clears throat> if you look through the gospel accounts up until this point, Jesus is always referring to the Father as my Father. But now as sin causes a separation between him and the Father, he cries out, my God, first time. Jesus never experienced the separation that sin causes until this moment when he who knew no sin became sin for us. Why is it a mix of Hebrew and Aramaic? Well, the Aramaic was the language of the common people in Judea. And I think possibly it's just to communicate clearly to all people that sin causes separation. The fourth saying, I think, speaks volumes to us that he was forsaken so we would never have to be forsaken. He was forsaken for us. 
We get to the fifth saying, and that's in John 19, verse 28. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Again, this is a direct fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 15, where it says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. You know, not only was Jesus Christ God incarnate, experiencing for the first time on the cross the agony of separation that sin causes, but he was also fully man. He lived and walked among us. 1 John 1, 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have held, handled. He lived and walked among them. He became a man. A man who was physically, uh, who physically experienced the pain and, and suffering of death. In fact, he was beaten beyond recognition. The Bible says, Isaiah 53, he was marred more than any man. <clears throat> As a man, he physically suffered on the cross. Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This fifth saying of Jesus Christ is speaking to us that we have a great high priest who can relate to any physical suffering you or I might experience in our lives. He understands what you're going through because he went through it. Now on to the sixth saying recorded in John 19 verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. This is the absolute best three words that were ever spoken. You may have thought it was probably no more snow. <laughs> I mean, that's a good, those, that's, that's awesome. No more snow. Woo. <clears throat> yeah, that's good. But this is the best words that were ever spoken since the Garden of Eden. It is finished. The plan of salvation, first spoken in Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Lord God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman <clears throat> and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's now finally completed here at the cross. The price for sin was paid in full. It is finished. It's telestai. It's paid in full. There's nothing more that needs to be done. It's so foolish when people think that they somehow can add to what Christ already did on the cross. Instead of resting in the finished work of the cross, they try to earn their righteousness through works or through legalism or through self-righteousness. It's so heartbreaking when people are told that their simple trust in Christ's finished work on the cross is not enough. They need Jesus and something. You can fill in whatever blank it is in order to be truly saved and delivered. It's not enough, and yet it is enough because Jesus said, it's finished. The fact that it is finished 
I think is the true purpose behind the symbolism excuse me, of the Sabbath rest. In Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, <clears throat> there therefore remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. The fact that it's finished, there's nothing more that we can do. There's nothing more that we have to do. It's been done. The finished work of Christ on the cross. The sixth saying, it is finished, are the best three words ever uttered since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. For in the finished work of the cross, that's where we find our true rest. The seventh saying in the final utterance of Jesus on the cross is recorded in Luke 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, <clears throat> into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. That is a fulfillment of Psalm 31, verse 5, by the way. And although Jesus was crucified at the hands of wicked men, they didn't take his life. John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Although Christ's body would lie in the grave, not for very long, but it would lay in the grave, his soul would return to the Father of spirits. And what this also, this last saying tells us, it encourages us about you and I as a believer in Jesus Christ after we die. See, the grave is not the believer's final resting place. It's not our destination. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What a glorious thing that is to, to reflect on. And so saints down through the ages, starting with Stephen, have breathed these same words, and it's recorded in <clears throat> Acts 7, verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You and I as believers... If you get the opportunity to pray that when you're, before you're dying, that's what you'll be praying. Lord, receive my spirit. This seventh saying speaks to us that we can entrust our soul to the Lord God. And what that means in a practical thing, we can live out our lives and face our eventual death with a complete peace that only comes through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so this seventh saying for you and I, it just speaks peace, the peace that comes from the cross because of what Jesus Christ did. John 14, verse 27, Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I hope this evening you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is your savior, that you've taken that simple step of faith of trusting in him for your salvation. And if you did, and have, if you have done that, you have that peace. We as believers shouldn't be running around in an unpeaceful state because we have the joy of our salvation.